I love what we have uh, sung together this morning. There is joy in the house of the Lord. He is a sure and steady anchor. He will hold me fast. He is my shield and the lifter of my head. I, I would love for you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to read from two passages together this morning. The first is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and the second, if you'll be finding, is Luke chapter 6, as we aim to by God's grace and through His Word, answer the question, who rules your heart and your words? The answer to one is the answer to the other. So, uh, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Listen to this counsel now. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. We're going to read Luke 6, but I'm already going to preach a little bit. You ever said something and then said, I didn't mean to say that. Here's what the Bible would say. Oh, yes, you did. And you meant it with all your heart. Now, Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe the Spirit of God uses the word of God to help us see our need of the Son of God. And for those of us who trust and believe in Jesus, you use your word to make us more like him. God, give us grace now to to see that the best indicators of what we love, what our treasure, what what we hope in, can be seen through what we speak, our words. Give us grace now to to really look to you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, you may be seated. Ecclesiastes 5 and then Luke 6 still open before you. There's no more harrowing experience that I've ever had than riding in the passenger seat while one of my 15-year-old children is driving. Ever. I didn't know what fear was until I was sitting in that seat. A few times I've actually pulled Julie, my wife, aside and said, sweetheart, I can't do it. I mean, I know we try to both bear some responsibility with our children, but I'm out. I cannot sit in that seat. But, of course, that's not quite fair to her, so I've tried to do my part. And it's really not at all that my children are bad drivers. I mean, we went through it with Mary Clara. I mean, she's 17 now. She's been driving for a little while. And Abel, he's 15 now, so that's where we are. Uh, He often says, Dad, can I drive? And I just kind of clutch those keys. I'm like, yes. It's just that once I'm the one who's riding and not driving, it's completely different. 
I find myself struggling not to say something constantly, so I just make a bunch of noises. Like, I actually went online and, and investigated how can you order and install those brakes they have in the driver's ed car. And we're just going and let's get the steering wheel while we're at it. It's so hard. I'm super sensitive to warning signs when I'm driving. And we live in this town where there's perpetual word work, road work going on, right? So you see things like lane closed ahead. And I say, did you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Detour ahead. The bridge is out. Actually, I've never seen that one. But I think the most stressful moments are when we're on the interstate. Mercy. I try to stay quiet, but there's sometimes you have to speak. You, you have to give warnings and instructions because all joking aside, there is a lot at stake. So the warnings are important. And so it is with God's word. That there are warnings that we need to pay attention to. You don't want to just blow by them. Because the warnings, a lot like the road signs, it's, it's for your sake, but also for the sake of other people. It's not just about me, right? That, that's the thing about warnings, whether it's machine wash warm only, you know, or take only one tablet a day. The warning is only helpful to the extent that you pay attention to it, right? So, I'm going to preach this sermon aware that for the most part, all of us are gathered here and we would say, it's important what we speak. It's important what we say. But the familiarity that we often have with the warning in Scripture, like so many things the Bible says, once we're familiar with it, it if we're not careful, we, we sort of stop really paying attention. You know, God's first warning in the Bible was in the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And the first strategy of the enemy, the serpent, was to convince Adam and Eve that he wasn't really serious. It's not that big a deal. So I don't want us to approach these warnings in the Bible with that mentality. That's what happens with God's warning. We have this strange inclination to, to not take them seriously. And one of the most consistent themes we find in the Bible is God warning us about the seriousness and significance of our words. So as we, as we walk through things together this morning, uh, I've got three kind of headings that we'll use. The value of words, the wise use of our words, and, and then... Maybe most importantly, the powerful truth Jesus teaches us about our words. So let's start here. Number one, the value of our words. Listen to this, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So, uh, talk about high stakes Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, we, we tend to think a little too little of our words, a little redundant. We would assign them importance, but maybe not that much importance. And I love the end of the verse, those who love it will eat its fruits. Did you know that you have the opportunity to use your words to replenish other people, to restore other people? to encourage other people. When he says death and life are in the power of the tongue, now I bet you can think about some times in your life. I mean, I, I was sitting with someone not long ago, older, 
precious lady who loves Jesus. And we were talking. And like that, tears welled up in her eyes. And as we continued to talk about it, she was still dealing with the pain from something her parents said to her 50 years ago. Death is in the power of the tongue. But man, let's grab a hold of this as well. Life is too. Think about your most important relationships. Husbands, I would tell you, you've either given death or life to your wife this week on the basis of how you've talked to her, what you've said. Do you give words of life to your children? I would say, especially, children are sensitive the very first moments of the day and the last moments at night. So if you're just yelling at them from the beginning and yelling at them to go to bed at the end, life and death are in the power of the tongue. What's what's usually the first and last thing your child hears you say? Your best friend in the world. He or she's on the phone. Or a certain generation, you're not talking on the phone, you're texting back and forth. And you've sent a text, and then you got to wait three dots, and you're going to wait, and they're going to text you back. Is it gossipy? Is it text that goes back and forth? If you're talking about somebody, would you say, man I, man, I hope they don't see this, or wouldn't want them to see this? Is it tearing somebody else down, or is it life, or is it death? And then Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many... Transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In other words, uh, the constancy of words undermines their value. Now, can we all agree on this? We live in a time and a place where it is constant talking, 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 talking. I have a a condition. I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe there's a name for it. I cannot bear multiple audio inputs coming at me at the same time. And I have five children. We'll be sitting in the living room watching television, and then one of them will get their computer, and they'll start listening to something. And then another one is playing a game in the other. And it's just all these audio inputs. At night, (laughs) I I often listen to an audio book um, to go to sleep. I, I mean, I don't know what that says about me either, but. And with five children, oftentimes it's until bedtime or at bedtime is the first time Julie and I can really have a conversation. So we kind of got this thing going on where I just, if I got the audio book going and then she starts to talk, I have to say, wait, 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 I gotta pause it. And then there's this, are we done talking? And I'll go back. No, no, no. I search out moments of quiet sometimes. I remember, I remember a few weeks ago, I was filling up at the gas station, which is already a highly emotional situation these days. And I started pumping the gas, and I thought to myself, oh, wait, what is that? It's quiet. And I just said, oh, fine. When blaring from the gas pump is this TV news update on the screen of the most unimportant, mindless celebrity news. Have we gotten to the point where we can't even take the two minutes we're standing at the pump without somebody talking to us? And because the words are so constant, because it's so easy to speak, we begin to devalue words. We might call it words inflation. There's just so many. We've got to be careful about 
what you listen to, guard your steps. Guard your steps. One of the best steps many of us in the room can take is kind of take inventory of what you're listening to. Does it build up? Does it give life? Does it spur you on to love Jesus? Does it just fill up the time? And also, increase the value you place on what you say. Do you know where the value of words comes from? It comes from God, amen? Because he is a speaking God. How did he make everything? The Bible says he spoke it into creation. The first words spoken in the Bible are not spoken by a human being. They're spoken by God. Words belong to him. Now, in your life, the course of your life, you're going to make three or four really big decisions. Really big decisions. Who you're going to marry. Occupation that you choose to train for and invest in. Where you live. But your life is made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of mundane moments. And if God doesn't rule those moments, he doesn't rule. Amen? So if you had a digital recording of all the words you spoke last week, would you want it played publicly? So everybody could hear it. If we were about to hit the play button right now, right? Would your heart rate go up? Listen to this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We're talking about the value of words. It's on the basis of your words. You say, well, how can that be? Well, here's what we'll get to. Your words say everything about your heart. What you love, what you trust. Can we just talk for a minute about this? Your words are valuable because your words are the best indicate, indicator of what you value. What your heart is set on. What you love. So what do you love to talk about? What do you love to talk about? Who do you love to talk about? Or what do you love to read about or download podcasts about? You listen and talk about what you love. Man, when you speak, your, your words have the power to encourage somebody who's ready to quit, and they also have the power to make someone quit who had been set on keeping going. You know what I'm saying? Your words have the power to give hope, to restore, to reconcile, or to express anger, jealousy, envy, racism, division. The best and worst moments of your life involve words, don't they? The first words spoken by a child are so exciting, right? So exciting. Already working on it with Jenna. Dada, dada. And as I referred to earlier, I've seen so much hurt. In someone's eyes over words spoken years ago. So there's great value in your words. Don't be rash with them. One of the clear things we'll see again and again and again in the Bible is you can let your words be few. You know, I've got this Fitbit. Counts my steps. I've got a certain goal in mind. Every day I want to hit that. What if you had a word bit? You want to get a lot of steps in, but the word bit would work opposite, right? You just have a certain number of words. And man, once you hit that, you could be silent for the rest of the day. Maybe somebody could make that technology. You'd probably be surprised the number of words that you speak. 
So that's the value of words. Let's talk for a moment from this passage, the wise use of words. You see it right there, verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And by the way, every word you say is said before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Some obvious things from the passage. First of all, you, you should not be quick to speak. Rash words indicate a heart that doesn't have self-control. Some of you grew up in a house like that, didn't you? Where there was shouting and there was yelling and raised voices and even threats. And notice the clear connection between your mouth and your heart in verse 2. Your, your mouth is a certain way because your heart is a certain way. Don't be rash because before the Lord you're not hasty. Hasty words. That means words spoken with little regard for the effect that they'll have. I mean, I frequently hear, I'm somebody that just has to speak my mind. Well, do you? Does the Holy Spirit filter your words? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Set a guard over my mouth, the psalmist prayed, right? So hasty words. It's always wise to be slow to speak. Look what it says. God is in heaven and you are on earth. I've got to think one of the most frequent thoughts God has is that they have no idea what they're talking about. Got no idea what they're talking about. No perspective. That's one of the benefits, again, right, of this James Webb telescope. If you're following along, just how huge the heavens are and just how small we are. Can, can you just appreciate the audacity it takes for a human being to go to God and say, this is what you should do? It's just audacious, right? It's audacious to think you know more than God or that he needs our input. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay? So Jesus is really helpful to our hearts. And, and as I was thinking about uh, the importance and value of our words uh, this week, one of the things I thought about was Jesus on the cross. What does he say? You know, there are, uh, there are seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. And if, and if we want help with our words, isn't this a great place to start? What does Jesus say on the cross? Who's his audience? And, and most important, What's his heart behind what he says? Because while it's, also, while it's true for you that what you say reveals your heart, it's also true of Jesus, what he speaks. And, and especially in these moments of agony at Calvary, think about with me, we'll go over them pretty quickly, but they're so important, seven statements that Jesus makes recorded in the Bible. He's, he's on the cross for six hours, so that means there was a lot of silence. A lot of minutes that go by that he's, he's not speaking. So just another reminder for us, don't be rash with your words. He's been nailed to the cross. And the Bible points out that he looks down and he sees Mary, right? First, one of the first statements he makes at the cross is, is woman, behold your son. And then speaking to the Apostle John, behold your mother. What's this about? What's this revealing about his heart? 
They're words of, of, of comfort and encouragement as Mary is in anguish. The words you use when you're in distress are revealing, aren't they? When you're in pain, when you're suffering. What comes up out of the heart of Jesus as he suffers is he's caring about Mary, who's also suffering. And he's also seeing to it that she's going to be provided for. You see that, right? Uh, Part of Mary's anguish is seeing Precious Jesus on the cross, man, you, it's powerful. You read through the Gospels, Luke in particular, she's rocked that baby in Bethlehem, taken him to the temple. Sword will pierce your soul, she had been told from the get-go. And there's Jesus' heart. Uh, the last thing you said to your family member, what was it? Family relationships can be hard, can't they? But that's where your faith shows up. Your faith shows up in your, in your closest relationships. And can I just say, man, the care for aging family members is close to the heart of God. Friends, that is the Lord's work. And Jesus is seeing to it words of comfort and encouragement. And and then the next statement he makes is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus prays for those who are crucifying him. He prays for the ones nailing him to the cross. And what he most desires for them is that they would be forgiven. What is it that you most want done to those who have wronged you? If you could get from God what you most want for those who've wronged you. And and this isn't a small thing. I'm not trying to be a preacher just saying something. For the heart of Jesus, it was that they would be forgiven. And you remember that they're yelling at him. He saved others. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? If he's he's the Christ, come down off the cross. Well, uh, the only way for his prayer that they be forgiven, be answered, is for him to be crucified. It's the only way they can be forgiven. Is for his blood to cover their sins. So what do you say to those who've wronged you? Third is the statement he makes to the thief on the cross, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. So that's, those are words of promise. Those are words of hope. To who? Now, if you, if you know the passage, uh, the thief initially wasn't on Team Jesus, so to speak. He was railing at him too. But Jesus is not rash with his words and he doesn't rail back. Peter will write later on, after the crucifixion of Jesus, for to this you have been called. All right, are you a follower of Jesus? To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we need that word today because we are a generation of revilers. Just turn on the television. Reviler, reviler, reviling. But that's not how Jesus is because that's not how his heart is. I want you to hold on to the teaching of Scripture. The reason he doesn't revile, the reason he doesn't threaten is because he's entrusting himself to the Father. That's why. He doesn't say you're going to get what's coming to you. 
No, the whole reason Jesus is on the cross is because he's taking what was coming to us. Crucified in our place. And friends, to this you have been called. There are seven statements Jesus makes. We've heard three. The next would be when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's a cry of anguish. I mean, he really did face the wrath of God. He's making intercession for us. This is what he dreaded in the Garden of Gethsemane when he begged, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. This is what he wanted pass, but it doesn't pass. It comes on him. He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it is a cry of agony, but it's also something significant. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalms is one of the quickest books of the Bible to find, because usually if you open right to the middle, you're, you, you, you're there. So Psalm 22. I want you to see that Jesus wasn't loving his enemies every now and then, but persistently, consistently, through the six hours on the cross. If you're in Psalm 22, you see verse 1? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What is it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So something important that's going on here is Jesus is on the cross. He's quoting Scripture. And not just quoting Scripture. He's doing something significantly important. Back then, they didn't do what I just asked you to do. Turn to Psalm 22. That, that, that's not how it was done. They knew their psalms by the first line. Because the psalms are songs, Right? For example, we have the song Amazing Grace. Why do we call the song Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace? Because if I say we're going to sing Amazing Grace, you know that's the first line. Amazing Grace. Be thou my vision. Come thou fount, right? It's the first line of the song. So it cues everybody up. All right, on the count of three, we're going to start. If that's how you do music, I'm not musical. You understand what I'm trying to say. So those Pharisees, they memorized the Psalms. There would be a caution to us. You can know the word of God well and not know the God of the word. You can. But when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For his enemies, the Pharisees who wanted him crucified, they would just in the same way that you can say amazing grace and you can begin to go through the song and hum it to yourself. They would have been able to do that with Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, you remember, it goes dark, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and throned in the praises of Israel. All this is precious and important. But verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Isn't that what they've shouted? If he's really the Christ, let him save himself. It's already obvious. But we get it to verse 16. Dogs encompass me. He was crucified near the Jerusalem dump. and Dogs were well known to scavenge there. A company of evildoers encircled me. And let's just put a big bolt in plain. They've pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments, verse 18. 
For my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, by the way. To his staunchest enemies, Jesus reaches out with compassion. It's got to be a hard heart that memorizes Psalm 22 and in that moment can look around and see it all displayed right before them. I thirst. That's a reminder to us that he was. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, fully human. It's not a complaint. It's not a deceit. It's an expression that he really has taken on human flesh and a nature like ours. It's finished. Praise God. Amen. It is finished. That's the declaration from the cross that the work he was given by the Father to do, he finished. I think it's the greatest sentence ever uttered on earth. It's finished. And then the last statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A prayer before he breathes his last, trusting the Father. So if we take his seven statements, I'm going to talk about a filter for your mouth, care for his family, prayer for his enemies, hope for those who are drawing near, quoting scripture, statement of need, declaration of what is accomplished at the cross, and prayer and trust the Lord as death approaches. You, you can guard against being rash with your words with these seven categories. And I hate the word category, by the way. That's, I don't mean it as if some sort of mathematical equation. But by the Spirit of God, we can become like Jesus. Are your words in line with his heart? Hey, just real quick, by the way. I, I told you yesterday I was running uh, to, to get, get ready for this 5K coming up. And sometimes when I run, it's my best times with the Lord, honestly, because it begins and ends with prayer. I will tell you that. But I was thinking about these seven statements, and I just kept thinking to myself, didn't he say something else? Like seven's such a perfect number. I think that's, and the answer is yes, he did say something else, but it wasn't on the cross. It was on the way to the cross. You remember this? All these women who are weeping and lamenting. And as he draws near where they're actually going to be crucified, he'd been carrying that beam and then collapses under the weight of it. And he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves, is what he actually says. You can go read it in Luke 23. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. And as I was running, these thoughts started coming to my mind. There's a lot of theological significance to what Jesus says to them. But what it shows us, and what I want to emphasize for my own life and to you, is that on the way to the cross, Jesus is not full of self-pity. He's not. Don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Why am I pointing this out? All that Jesus does on the cross comes in light of his refusal to be full of self-pity on the way to the cross. And I'm emphasizing this because I think this is, this is it. This is, this is the distinction. This is the dividing line. 
If I go through life feeling sorry for myself and wanting other people to recognize how hard I have it or self-focus is my struggles, my challenges, that is the off-ramp to the crucified life. Self-pity in the heart says, weep for me, and never pays attention to enemies to be forgiven, longs to bring in the sinner into the kingdom of God, stops looking at the glory of heaven, and sees only the momentary sufferings of today, inverts what the Bible says, the glories to be revealed are not worth comparing with the sufferings that I have right now, and starts accusing and envying and being jealous of family members instead of seeking their own good. And that's where it happens. So the better the the remedy to self-pity is to know the one who was crucified on the cross. Amen. I mean, what have we got to complain about and mope through life? I don't in any way seek to diminish the hardships and the sufferings, but if we're not careful, we'll begin to make our hardships our identity. When Paul said, you want to talk about a man who endured some hardship. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We want to end with the powerful truth Jesus teaches about our words. It's in Luke 6. Luke 6, a good tree, verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again a bad tree bears good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. We lived in a uh, a house when uh, Mary Claire and Abel were little with a big fig tree, real simple. Do you know how I knew it was a fig tree? You know how I knew. Late July, early August, a little bit earlier in this time of the year, figs. Figs everywhere, right? It's a fig tree. It's its nature. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. All right, so that's obvious. Now let's make it obvious about our lives. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart. Treasure of your heart. What does your heart value most? What's most precious to you? That's what your treasure is. Everybody has a treasure. Your heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we'll do this quickly, but man, it's so important. You live out of your heart. Live out of your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The, the heart is the real you. So we don't have any room to say, Jesus rules my heart, but not my words. No, that can't be, right? Whatever rules my heart is indicated by my words because out of the abundance, what does that mean? Out of what's filling it up, filling up your life. I want, man, this is how my sin nature works. Maybe yours does too. I I want to believe my biggest problems are outside of me. Somebody else or something else. And I'm angry with my words because of my situation or harsh with other people because they're just hard-headed. That's what I want to believe. I'm not harsh with my words because of how hard-headed other people are. I'm harsh with my words because of how hard-hearted I am. 2 Corinthians 5.15 
those who believe in God would no longer live for themselves, but for him who gave himself for them.